This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for media sales professionals. In each episode, we bring you information, insights, and ideas from some of the industry's top thought leaders. Connect with us to help pick the topic and guide the show. This is Media Sales Mastery, the podcast for landscape architects and industrial engineers. No, that is not us. It is for media sales professionals. I'm your host, Jamie Wood. There is a reason I did that. Our topic today is all around crafting killer client creative. That's right. Crafting killer client creative just rolls off the tongue with the alliteration there. When you are selling media, particularly direct media, there is a constant tension and a constant trade-off when it comes to the client's creative. Now, in many cases, the client has a very strong motivation to advertise. This is often intrinsically linked to how much they like their own creative. However, clients live in client land. Clients speak the language of the client. Clients think through the perspective of their product teams and of their competitors. And often what happens is a client will deem something to be good creative, but it's actually ineffective creative when we put it to market. Therefore, media sales professionals have a dilemma on their hands. Do we A, placate the client, put the creative to market and take that short-term revenue win and that risk that it is or isn't going to work? Or do we B, have a difficult conversation with the client, slow the deal down and potentially jeopardize the revenue altogether? Neither scenario sounds good to me, but that is okay. We've got just the people here to help you. This is actually the second ever double header episode. I've got two guests and both of them are absolute guns in this field. So joining today is Andrew Bagg-Sidwell. He's the head of content and experience at Third Space, the content company, and a former colleague and good friend of mine, Mr. Michael Dargan, the head of creative at ARN. I'm a little under the weather after a big week of client trips and client concerts. The first world problems are really high here at the moment. My voice is a little tired, but these guys give me a lot of energy, and this is a topic I love talking about, so I'm pumped to get into it. The first five. Welcome, gents. Great to have you both on. G'day, mate. G'day. When I approached you both about this, there was an initial reluctance. I remember we were having a chat on LinkedIn because we didn't just want to do another podcast shitting all over creative, did we? Um, Is it fair to say, though, for many media sales professionals that effective client creative is actually quite hard to achieve? What do you reckon, Bag? Uh, Yeah, shots fired straight up. I reckon um, (laughs) that creative should never be effective for the client. Okay, controversial opinion. Yeah, straight up. It should be effective for the audience, right? And that, I know it sounds like, oh, the bag's a basic bitch. But um, <laughs> I, Your words. I reckon behind it uh, hides the real issue. Uh, are you making campaigns for the client or are you making it for the audience? And too much of the time in media, um, even agency, we just get – you know, we get stuck in thinking about what the client's going to approve or what the client's going to, um, you know, like. But ultimately, at the end of the day, who's the audience and how different are they from the client? Um, and then how is your creative being evaluated through the approval process by whom and how? So I reckon for me, I've got some kind of thoughts about what is effective for the audiences, but I'm pretty keen to hear what Dugsy has to say about the topic. <laughs> so am I, mate. What do you reckon, dogs? Yeah, listen, like to me when I when I kind of was to go to your first point about, you know, sh- you know, shitting on bad creative, I think that's done far too much across the industry and and uh, you know, as soon as I as soon as I saw, you know, let's do a podcast around, you know, talking about what what makes bad creative, it makes me go, 
I I enjoy the fact that people are out there crafting, giving it a crack, because every piece of bad creative always lead to, you know, great stuff. I can think of some of the stuff that I produced, you know, in my time, and, and it, it's probably absolute garbage, but, you know, it's led to bigger and different ways of, of thinking. To me, when you're talking about, you know, the effectiveness or, or sales professional's ability to affect, you know, client creative as well, you know, to me, it, it's intertwined with the relationship. Like, it's not just, you know, the trust that for the sales professional, but it's also the trust that the agency and the client actually has in the channel as well. Like, a great sales rep would have hopefully answered a lot of the questions that they had around the channel, which would probably allow clients to feel a lot more brave by the time they got to the actual creative execution. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I think coming at it from my perspective, you know, I started in direct sales. I was out there selling advertising to SMEs mostly, not having really done anything other than a 20-minute sit-down with a creative writer talking about process. And suddenly I'm entrusted to kind of bring the client's information in and be the conduit between the client and the creative. And I always found it was it was really that friction point in getting a deal signed off often was getting the client to like the creative was actually like removing a barrier that would, would actually entice them to then go and sign off on the deal, right? So that's where I think the tension is here is is it's like that trade-off between, okay, ease of transaction, helping the client you know, helping the client sort of navigate the buy, giving them confidence and comfort to come on board. But then it's like, I don't want to create these barriers for myself by starting to get really precious about the creative. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's like 23-year-old me and my perspective was, it was difficult because, you you know, you're you're wanting to do the best thing by the advertiser, but you also have to navigate the fact that you're really kind of having to have a difficult conversation with them about something maybe you don't even really know hmm. what effective creative looks like either. Um, so that's the difficult, the difficult thing for me. I mean, reflecting on that, new reps coming in when you guys have seen them, do you think that's a common problem that people have? Is that is that sort of universal, or is that just unique to me? Yeah, I reckon it's uh, universal. Um, and there's some real, I mean, there's some great nuggets in there, right? It's like ultimately what we're talking about is now with the genius of hindsight of being 300 years old and going back thinking when you were 23 and I was a 23 year old copywriter thinking I knew the world and, you know, telling reps, nah, you got it wrong, throwing scripts. I'm like Nick Randall, who is one of a really good mate of mine, but when he was a direct rep, when he came to Fox as a direct rep from ANZ Marketing, I was, you know, I'd throw his briefs back on his table and just have this is shit. And I know, and I heard later he wanted to punch me out, right? Just obnoxious kind of creative cliche. But what we're talking about is how do you de-risk it for the clients, really? And so that's a good creative's job. Oh, well, that's a creative in, in that kind of, Environment, not necessarily an agency creative, but coming through, coming through the radio direct, like I came through the same thing. Um, what I was accountable for and what we really had to um, drive was a, a, the results register. So I ran the results register, right? So absolutely knowing other campaigns, other categories and other clients, how radios work for them. And also then knowing what you did to make it work for them, right? And so becoming really fusing marketing discipline, fusing behavioral economics, like really starting to understand your, if you're in radio and medium, understanding how to break physiology of people. So, and, and that's the creator's responsibility to articulate uh, why this is going to work, why you're confident that will work. And for me, that came from sitting in a room when I was a junior writer 
and there was an, a kind of senior guy who'd been there for years and hearing him, this is when we had to read our scripts down the phone to the client and fax them across. Hearing him argue with a client where the client was, you know, challenging a part of his script and his answer was, oh, that's the creative bit. And you're going, mate, these guys are business owners. That's never going to fly. You're going to lose that argument every single time. Yeah. You've, you've got to develop as a creative in, in, you know, media, you've got to develop the business acumen, the small business acumen, the marketing acumen. You've got to be able to think on your feet and pitch that not as a creative concept. And it's great. And, you know, it's all bells and whistles, but this is going to work because of this, this and this reason. And I think about, and for a big chunk of my career after those years, that kind of disappeared. Like when you get into this agency brief answering thing, you're not really responsible for the results, like what we know from that space is the medium gets blamed rather than just the individual kind of campaign, like radio or whatever gets blamed. But that is the, you know, that is the fundamentals of you've got to know what levers to pull and how to articulate and the reason why to instill confidence in these clients that this will work. And I think of years later when I sat in uh, Media Brands in a digital agency and I was outside the uh, office, the boardroom where Matt Baxter was pitching Coke and they won it, right? So they won the media for Coke and he was standing in front of a screen with a slide that said why this will work. And I was like, fuck yes, that is fucking confidence and, you know, and belief. And it's, it's channeling your inner Matt Baxter um, as a creative and knowing every single kind of, you know, um, aspect to it. And it even like, I came across something the other day, which was I was writing something for a friend and it was, I was reading a research study on e-learning and it was the media used in e-learning and it was these experts had done this study in like 2005 and then they've been continually to do it. And what they found is that the brain, um, the, the cognitive working memory uh, in the brain gets overloaded when people are trying to be taught something through um, words and text. So those two things don't go together. But you think about so many of the visual ads on, you know, uh, on TV or whatever it is, and you go, mate, I would never have learned this if I wasn't working on an e-learning brief. And I've been doing this in my ads because something like the brain processes um, text at like 300 words a minute, but speak speech is like 140 words a minute. Yeah. So you yep. got the, and so and what. It, that what the professors said, it was like it for, forces cognitive overload of the working memory. So nothing's going to retain then, right? So you, as a creative, you've got to kind of, fuck, how do I make it easier for the audience to be actually, you know, receive this message, one, cut through, receive it, deliver it, land it, and, you know, and then move on. And if, you, if you're a creative who doesn't have that, you know, vocab, fucking develop it quick. That's interesting, even just what you started talking about there of just having a level of commercial and business acumen and, and actually being able to articulate and connect what it is the creative does to somebody who is a small business owner who lives their world. What about you, Doug? It's like you've got, you've got reps at the coalface. They're coming in with briefs. They're creating campaigns. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, one of the biggest things uh, as well with, with sales rep and around creativity and it's workshops that I've, that I've been running, um, at ARN for a little while now is around helping some of the sales guys understand what creative qualities they have and actually how they bring that to the table when they're in those environments. Like, um, I think it was Bag that said many years ago to me that, Every single time we go into a brainstorm and a sales rep delivers a, a, a brief into the room, by the time we walk out of that room and the door closes, 
what happened or what took place in that room has always already, you've already won or lost that brief based on the idea that was generated in that room. And sometimes you get sales reps who, you know, want to be heavily involved in, in that creative process. However, you know, probably shouldn't be. And then at other points in time, you've got these incredible uh, sales reps that, that understand how to pull a brief apart and deliver it into a room full of creative people who are just sitting there ready to kind of throw ideas around and knowing that they can play a role in it versus other sales rep knowing how that they need to probably step aside and, and know when to kind of float back into that environment as well. Um, and that goes right through to the pitch as well. That you, know, you, you will have sales reps that feel more comfortable you know, out there talking potentially a rate position and you're going to have other sales reps out there who are far more interested in talking around the idea. You know, Dan O'Callaghan is one that comes to mind for me who is just an incredibly passionate um, salesperson, but he loves talking around the idea and he loves being, you know, really kind of involved in it at, at a deep level as well. And so... It's a skill that for him as a creative, you can kind of go into a pitch environment and you, you know, the role that you're going to play is probably a little bit more supportive, um, as opposed to kind of delivering the idea itself because he's very comfortable in that space versus, you know, you've got other sales reps where, you know, you know that you're going to have to be the one that is going to have to take a client through the actual idea from start to finish as well. But going right back to the beginning, helping and, and teaching, uh, uh the sales guys to understand what what level of creativity not what level of creativity they have but because i believe everybody has a level of creativity it's how they apply that creative understanding what it is that they're good at i know one of the things that you know again bag and i've spoken about quite a lot in the past is all around divergent convergent creativity and you know divergent creativity is you know quite often the creatives in the room sitting there bouncing around a hundred different ideas and feeling really quite comfortable with it whereas a sales rep most commonly leans a little bit more towards convergent where they just want to, they're applying the brief, they're applying the metrics that they know are going to come. They, they're they already starting to apply some of the stuff, um, even their relationships and the conversations they've had with clients. So they already want to kind of steer and shape the idea before it's even had a chance to kind of, you know, be, you know, to, I guess, evolve to its, you know, full potential. I totally hear that. I think like, particularly in the brainstorming scenario, but I'm sure just in the creative process, it's it's really easy for a rep who's taken all this objective information, um, has this very objective view of what they know they need to put back to the client in order to secure the revenue to then kind of go and indulge this divergent kind of thinking and to go in blue sky. You can, you can see them almost just innately wanting to bring it back to, let's just get to what it is that's going to actually help us persuade that client to come on. Totally. It's a classic, like, you know, sales reps, I think, you know, when they come into, you know, a media business, they're handed the tools. It's the, the, the tool belt that they're kind of given to be able to go out there and they know how to kind of use it. So they instantly gravitate towards, for me, for instance, you know, working in, in radio, it is, you know, I need a, a breakfast show tactic or I need this to sit within a drive show. Or I need this talent to play a role within it, as opposed to really removing themselves from that and stopping themselves from jump into the tool belt, thinking about the solution and then working out what tools you know to apply to it afterwards. Yeah, that's a really good call. I mean, well, let's jump into the main part of this. Media sales mastery. Because we've kind of got like three, I guess, rough kind of like outlines of topics that we think we want to unpack. But I think where we got to start is just at the basics. What are the hallmarks of effective creative? So let's be like media agnostic. 
creative that's going to work for the audience, bag to your point, what are the hallmarks of that? What are the things that you go, if I'm going to put this, if I'm going to put my name against this piece of creative and I'm going to send a rep off to uh, to go and pitch that to their client and persuade them that this is going to work, what do you need to have there to be comfortable and confident before you pass that work over? The old kind of rules are still apply, right? It's got to have a sim, uh, single-minded proposition. It has to be really kind of simple, you know, the, the salient thing. Like it just, it has to be really kind of, the audience has to be able to, when they uh, engage with it, they have to kind of grasp the concept. I think all of the stuff that um, Ritson and John Evans from System One talk about is so unbelievably true, right? So it has to have kind of distinctive brand assets, um, unexpected in some way. Um, it, it has to pull an emotion. It has to figure out what emotional job it has to do. Um, and it has to be really clear in what it's asking of the audience from an action point of view, you know, what, what wants them to do. Um, plus it also, the, the behind the scenes work has to be done. You have to know how you're measuring it, how, like, what is the goal and role of this piece of creative? Um, and then how are you going to measure that and how realistic is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean that's the like the thing with the system one stuff. I'm, are you following system one and into the, no, no, I need to get on that. Um, so John hosts the uh, is it uncensored Simo uh, podcast. So he did the great one with Ritson at the end of the year video as well. It's a video podcast. Um, so system one is a they've been measuring. Ads, it's an incredible um, ad testing uh, company. And they've been testing ads for probably 10 years, a bank of incredible ads. But the key thing that like, you know, when he was talking to Ritzman, Ritzman about is that they have like a five star kind of ranking system with different five different criteria. I think, you know, distinctive brand assets. Um, and it, and it is long and short. So it is, there's the brand building component of it. And then there is the short term kind of response aspect to it. Um, but they can now tie it to market share. So if you shift, if you pretest your creative or you pretest your concept with them and then, and Tourism Australia did. So the Ruby campaign, the brilliant you know, animated animatic animal campaign, um, they all the way through their process, they were testing, testing it with system one. I think it ended up at a five, like a five star, um, uh, ranking. So I think it is six stars, but each one, each, each star ranking that you increase equals, I think it's one or 2% market share. So like from a CMO perspective, you can tie creative concept testing to expected outcomes. So I think that's the, you know, understand if you go and look at those elements, they're kind of in conflict with what I, you know, I mean, I had this discussion and even a bit of a creative fight with uh, Rob, who owns the agency that I'm working at, where I was talking about, we've got to start using system one. This was last week. And he's like, and this was hot off the back of a conversation where he was going, we've got to be accountable this year. And like, it's a real focus with, you know, um, with budgets, you know, you've got to make yourself accountable. So yeah, we should be looking at system one because, you know, their stuff's incredible. And then it was like, oh yeah, but, you know, talk to, talk to so-and-so creative director and I'll tell you the reason why ad pre-testing doesn't work. And you're kind of going, yeah, maybe not, maybe 60 years ago or whatever, five years ago, but that, Technology and those processes have improved. So why wouldn't we be learning from over here and going? Because those things are really like, you know, obviously jingles and mnemonics and, you know, characters, all those things, distinctive brand assets, they all contribute to um, an ad success. So yeah, I don't think, I think there's probably 
the baseline of the fundamentals and then some other variables that Dargs is going to tell us all about now. Well, I was going to say, before <laughs> before he does that, I'm going to put a link to System 1 in the show notes and then I'm going to retroactively totally. charge them for the three-minute live read for them you just did in my podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to charge you for the introduction, so I mind if you get any, yes. any kickbacks and, and gigs from yes. this. Man, the it's the tech. circular... It's a circular backslap economy. No, but Please. it's fascinating. It's fascinating, um, and I'm not being facetious. It's actually fascinating seeing the art and science converge like that, right? Like, um, it's so interesting because so much of it has been gut feel. And, Dargs, I know I was going to sort of ask you the question of effective creative, but it, as Bag was talking, it made me just think about the dynamic that used to play out often when you and I would collaborate, which is, mm. here's the idea that we know is fantastic. And it's probably more in the agency space, if I'm honest. Here's the idea that we know is fantastic. Here's the way this agency likes to buy. Here's the way they like to be pitched to. Here's all the criteria we need to tick off. Um, And sometimes it's like we've got to kind of retrofit a solution to almost like a predefined playbook that we just know is going to maximize our chance of winning the response. How do you reconcile with those two things? Because that's that's always been one that's been difficult for me to uh, balance. It's always, it's that, that is a big challenge, especially, uh, especially when, you know, we, we know the role we play. We know, we know our place. Like when a brief kind of comes to us, it has gone through probably, you know, rounds and rounds of strategy. Everything has probably been chewed on so many different times. And by the time we kind of get to it, I, I've probably taught myself over a long period of time now just to instantly kind of, I see solutions. I see the end game. I can hear a campaign. I can, uh, and for me, it's all about, how do I backtrack that idea? What are the, what are the pathways that I kind of took to develop that idea? And then how do I articulate that or bring a client, um, on that journey as well? You know, one of the, one, to me, one of the, uh, the best things that you can do with when pitching any form of creative to a client is to actually, is to take them on that, that journey as to how you got there, but also tell them a little bit about the ideas that hit the cutting room floor, the ones that aren't actually going ahead as well. Okay. Yeah. You know, the, and, and because they're the ones that allowed you to pivot and kind of find your way to, to something really good. The, you know, for me, when you're talking about, you know, the, also go back to what you were saying before around the telltale signs of, you know, great creative, Bag kind of touched on it really quickly there, but it's, it's when you're in a brainstorm and when you're in that room, there's this infectious energy, I think, when a great idea or a great concept kind of hits the floor in the room. And, you know, Jamie, we've been in rooms together before in the past and you kind of, you can see an idea and you go, hang on a second, there's something really in that. And yep. I think that as, I think that as an industry, we, uh, we, we very much are about how many different ideas we can all produce. And I think there's, there's not a lot of building on ideas that kind of take place in that environment. So for me, um, you know, one of the biggest telltale signs there is if you get a moment of like silence or the room just kind of sits with an idea for, you know, a period of time, that to me is, is the, 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 uh, you know, kind of the view that there's going to be a great, idea at the end of it can i jump on that because i think i think that's really i mean that's a really great point and and you know we've dogs and i've been in rooms that where just gold's cracked open i'm thinking of the coca-cola um name song yeah uh the invite for the coca-cola when they first did the names we got the brief and it was like in you know share a coke with a mate and we Kind of one of the guys in the room, Murray, was hang on. This is an invite. There's they're, they're missing the invite phase, and so the, the room came up with like you know create 
we'll, we'll make 130 songs for each one of those names on the cans. Oh, cool. right? Yeah, and, nice. And it, and it just smashed it and we won it. But um, there was a safe room. I think that's the key point I want to make. You have to mm. teach people. You have to teach people because, you know, I've been listening to Belonging, the Owen Eastwood book, which is just beautiful. Um, and he talks about the difference between um, individualist society like we are in the West and then collective society like the Islanders, like the Japanese culture, right, where it is you're doing it for the group, the family, right? And so um, – and, and we've become more individualist. So when you go into those rooms – you know, you, you know that there's people who want to try and prove themselves. Um, and this, that, that's great. But what they're kind of lack from a self awareness perspective is the ability to kind of take a breath and see magnificence in other people's work. Yeah. And that is the mm. true, that is the, like, I know my, uh, my good mate Wade Kingsley bangs on about brainstorming his bullshit and, you know, yeah. he's, he, that's IP and he makes his living from it. But, you know, I challenge it. If you set up a room and you know how to make a room safe and people and from a sheer kind of volume point of view, um, and you understand transactional analysis. So, um, TA today, the three different ego states that humans have, parent, adult, child. And that they mirror the phases of a good brainstorm is like you need the, you need the adult, the facts and logic to do the brief. You need the child curiosity to do the creativity and you need the parent judgmental bit to fucking kill off the shit. Oh, I love that. And, oh. and so, you know, that, that, um, that what Doug's talking about, it, it is so gorgeous, but it doesn't happen. Um, and, and that's why you have to cast the rooms and you have to teach yep. people to take them on the journey. This is how we do creative. When we do it, when we get together as a, you know, a, it's not a group think session. This is a spark and a build, but you have to put your ego in your pocket or behind the work. Um, and then the room has to develop a language of safety to be able to safely call out, hey, you kind of, you know, and and it's really hard. I mean, Doug's, we went through that mm. phase where we learned from the what if people that Lizzie took us on that that brainstorming thing with the what if group, and yep. they had this thing called greenhousing, which is about like you know, a, and it's a beautiful concept. Like a new idea comes out like a blade of grass, a tiny little blade of grass, and it's so easily trampled on. And your responsibility as a group is to greenhouse it, is to protect it and nurture it, right? Um, and then we came up with this concept that's like, well, what people won't do in brainstorms if they're not behaving right is they shit house it. Um, and they just yeah. don't trample it. So we wanted to go to Bunnings and, um, buy a plastic toilet seat. They're like 10 bucks. <laughs> and in a brainstorm, if you started shit housing, we wanted to make you wear the toilet seat. We never, we never executed on that. Was- <laughs> I, I do, I do remember that. I don't, I don't think Jill would have, would have, uh, no, 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 let that one. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, this is Jamie. If you are enjoying this podcast, you should check out another one we did with the masterful Andrew Bag Sidwell. The title of the episode is The Pitch Economy, and it touches a little bit on the creative space. It touches a little bit on process. It touches a little bit on just pitch pitch methodologies, and uh, it's a really good kind of just a good listen. He's definitely someone who really knows that space better than anyone. The other one that's worth having a listen to is all around balancing the audience and the advertiser with my good friend, Mr. Andy Prokopis. Now, he's a colleague of Michael Dargan. He did a podcast with me recently. Both podcasts are well worth diving into if you haven't already. So that is The Pitch Economy and Balancing or Serving Audience and Advertiser. Check it out in the library now.
there's such a point there. Sorry, dogs, but you might agree with this too. But that whole piece around, you know, the the um, inquisitive child and then the parent to bring it into line, it's it's like the sequencing of that too. Like knowing when to step in and be like the arbiter of the idea, knowing when to shut up. And I think that thing about casting the brainstorm, like I love Wade, he's one of my favorite people, but I think I've been in so many brainstorms that you just get good at it. And to your point, you get good at casting it. You go, I can already see the politics that I'm going to enter into the room with. This guy's going to be a dickhead. This person has a massive incentive to want to do that. This person isn't going to have the answers here. So the beauty sometimes is actually just in forecasting that and just creating an environment where you can steer the room you don't have to moderate it you just have to be able to have the eq to go how do we just make sure this all plays out one of the biggest things for me like hearing you say that i i agree i think that there's nothing more in my opinion nothing more potent than than a great brainstorming environment where everybody is in is in there building on solutions i've been in shocking ones but i've you know when you know you're in a great room one of the biggest you know um, tools for me that I like to use in the room and, and one of the first ones that I teach, you know, people that are coming into our business, like new guys into our integration teams and stuff is all around signaling. And again, I, I'm, I could have been you bag that taught me this one or it could have been fishy. I'm not sure, but it was all around signaling in the room what the intent is that you're actually doing. And I feel as though it's just one of those most simplistic tools that if used, it can be so effective. So, you know, as I, the amount of times I've sat up there, whiteboard marker next to the whiteboard and you just need to signal to the room what phase you're in in the brainstorm, what what you're asking for the people in the room to contribute towards. You know how to kind of signal to stop something. When the bags idea, I totally had forgotten about the 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 analogy around greenhousing, but fuck, I wrote it down. I'm going to go back to that again. But to me, one of the the biggest things is making sure that when somebody drops an idea into a room. Uh, we allow it the time and the space to kind of be built out into an actual creative solution as yeah. well. Because to me, you know, the easiest and the way I talk about it with my guys is, you know, an idea can't be executed. An idea is just something that's dropped into the room, but you can't execute an idea. It hasn't got enough meat on the bones. Yeah. It hasn't gone through the right process to be able to be delivered upon. So yeah, you haven't productized you know, it. Totally. Well, yeah. yeah, just don't, but don't kill ideas. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause, you know, those ideas could be built into something, um, a hell of a lot more. So on the, um, on the signaling thing, it was, it's, it's funny because Rob brought it up again the other day. So Rob, who owns the agency, actually for a period of time worked for What If, and that's why I learned it when we did that What If, um, course. And so signaling also in brainstorms, it's a really great way to get an idea up. So, the signal is, hey, this might be a bit stupid, so don't please don't kill it. There's something mm-hmm. interesting in it. I'm just going to say it, and then you say it. And by signaling that way, you'd have to be a real dick then just mm-hmm. to carve it up in a room. So, And that's a, another technique you use when there's a bit of a hostile room as well is that kind of, you know, it, it's like it, it is a vulnerability, right? Um, and, and putting ideas in a room of people that you might not know. So when new people come in, it's incre- you have to, you're incredibly vulnerable then, right? You're putting mm-hmm. yourself out there. So again, to the belonging stuff, you know, on Eastwards, like how do you create safety and give those cues that it's okay to be here? And so that's teaching those techniques like, um, like signaling is super critical. Um, as you bring people on board and you as a leader in that room, you have to model those behavior. And there's mm-hmm. times you know, like hundreds of people tell you how much of a dick I've been in rooms. And that's because I've gone in not being present, 
million things on the page and anyone, no one's going to be good in a brainstorm or an idea session if you're dragging your inbox with you. So you do have to do that kind of, you know, catch just be, just be present and try and separate five minutes before going in or, you know, like you're fighting the gap. I'm sure I actually had to listen to the audiobook, The Third Space Over the Break. Dags, I think you got that onto me around not only transitioning from your work life to your home life, but just transitioning mm-hmm. through these moments in your day. And I have to say, like in the role I'm in now, the biggest thing for me I'm I'm not struggling with, but I'm just finding it really interesting is just the mental agility required in a day. You'll go from an operational meeting to a pricing meeting to a client meeting to dealing with a personnel issue to dealing with a strategy thing to dealing with a collaborative session and just being able to kind of move through those things but not bring the baggage, the emotional baggage or the emotional weight of that and also being present in the room and not thinking about the next thing you're walking into. Um, Do you meditate? No, I use um, – I have, like, these little micro-rituals. Like, a lot of it to me is is just – is sort of deep breathing. Um, but I've got these little things that the book – what the book does, which is really cool, is it actually just shows you the things you're already doing and just unearths them. So, for me, this sounds really weird, and I'm going off on a massive tangent, but when I play music – I never realized, but my transition phase is I wash my hands because when you wash your hands, it's you're instructed to do it before you play the guitar or the bass because it prolongs your string life. But it's actually my way of going, I'm going to be creative now. I'm going to go like I'm moving into this creative space. So a lot of it's that, which is really weird. Going into a brainstorm, I go and wash my hands. It sounds weird. It just works. It flicks a switch in the brain. Mm. Can I tell you, it actually isn't. Um, so there's a, and I'll tell you a story. So there's a guy called Josh Waskin and he wrote a book called The Art of Learning. The movie Looking for Bobby Fischer was his dad wrote it about him. So he was a junior chess champion. It was based upon him. Uh, and so Josh Waskin got out, like got to the, you know, top stages of chess when he was a kid, got out of it and got into this martial art called push hands, which is the martial art form of Tai Chi. Uh, and then he got to like the world championships in Taiwan and, you know, they changed the, his match and only announced it in Cantonese and all these kind of dirty tricks because they didn't want an American to win it. And then he got beaten by an illegal move. So he went back home and trained for a month, a year for illegal moves. And in it, he documents his, um, his training ritual and, and so his whole book is about the similarities between a, a mental sport and a physical sport and what the learning kind of techniques are. And his training rituals were like, and he talks about like it was a, you know, it's, it, it was this song and he would do his training and it got to a point where all he had to do was think about the song and he would shift into that elite performance mode. So whether that's flow, Michaeli, you can think the Mahaley, that flow state, that's exactly what you're doing, right? Is you, you know, those kind of the sequencing that gets you into this performative state. And then you've over time, you've honed it and honed it and honed it and honed it. Same with me with meditation. Like I meditate to an Indian classical album that I only ever kind of need the first song for. And now, you know, when I hear that first note of the pan flute, I'm just like, you're already there. Wow, everything changes. Yeah. And my breathing changes. So it's, it's like what you're talking about is 100% connected to mastery and creativity and all those aspects because these are, and I remember um, chatting to this guy called Dave Insel and he was, had just set up this platform business called 90 Seconds. I think it was a video company. And he would, he said to me, I'm going around to all these different, you know, CMOs and CEOs and they have all got some kind of ritual. Um, meditation r- ritual and, and he's like you know when you're at that higher performance level and you grow in your career you've got to have that you've got to have that 
you know, the ability to calm yourself and center yep. yourself. And, yep. and, mm-hmm. and like when I learned to meditate, it was a decade ago and it was, um, Doug was in the team and we had these new characters start a designer who thought he knew everything. <laughs> and I was meditating and he was like really irritating me. And then I started to learn to meditate and his stuff. It was just like it was coming at me in slow motion. I could just step around it. Yeah, wow. And it just fe- feels like it slows down time across day. And so the thing with meditation is, you know, you, you do it in the morning, you do it at night, you kind of get it into a ritual and you, and you feel the benefit across the day. It lasts long and it's just stuff that, you know, that normally, you know, you, you obviously got your rituals and you know how to do it, but it's just one, another layer for you to be able to, um, the, the, fluency of your thinking that you need your brain to be kind of constantly performing um but yeah all the tools in the, in your arsenal you know good night's sleep good diet all those things that's absolute elite performance for for, for what you do yeah good night good night's sleep like just uh to hone on that i think that 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 is just so important and to me that is you know that uh, i i really struggle and i've spoken about this before with you bag like to me i feel as though we live in a very sprint environment yep. but we're expected to kind of be marathon runners and you know it's really important that you, that you kind of you know um change your behaviors to suit and understand that every single day you're running sprints within sprints within sprints but you got to be able to give yourself those micro breaks so for me i've i really i've tried and you know we've spoken about this for years now around meditating and i i try and i dip in i get as i, I get as far into it as i can but then what i realize is for me it is about these consistent and methodical distractions that I allow myself throughout the day. So I know, for instance, I will sprint at a piece of work um, and I will go kind of really deep into it. But then when I'm done, I'm exhausted. And what I'll, I'll reward myself and I, you know, I, I could be jump onto YouTube and, and watch a, a piece of content or a, a music video or something like that. And it just, it's a reward and a rest and getting ready to kind of go again. You know, it's rather than trying to sprint the entire day out because every time I try to do that and I back myself with brainstorm after brainstorm after brainstorm, no one's getting the best out of me yeah. by the end of the, the day whatsoever. That's it. And it's also like, I think you're an interval trainer with that. Like it's the it's the decompression mm. phase as well and just taking things in the funnel. Hey, let's jump yep. into this next thing because this is probably the point where we're going to get a bit more practical and tactical. And this is around managing some of those conversations, those pointier conversations with clients. So, and let's do it from the perspective of a client who maybe might not be particularly familiar with your medium and or just with creative advertising, creative material in general. You know, they're running a business or they're in a function of the business. What's been your approach to getting across your point of view when you've got an idea that you really believe is a piece of work that is going to work? The client isn't necessarily on board, or they might be harp, You know, they might be hanging on certain things that are really important to them that actually don't connect at all with the with the audience. What are some of those kind of um, techniques that people can use in those scenarios to make sure that they can obviously bring the client around to to that way of thinking and almost save the client from themselves, but obviously without jeopardizing the relationship or revenue or, or anything. So it's a big question, a lot to unpack, but Doug, do you kind of get what I mean? It's sort of like... Absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I, I think Bag kind of touched on it, on it earlier as well. Just in re- like one of the biggest things for me is especially when you're dealing with more of those, you know, pointy conversational pointy questions around it is I personally, I really try to avoid using words like I feel or, you know, I think that this is the better way to do it. And you've really got to teach yourself how to 
can you articulate your creative opinion and anchoring it back to something that's tangible that, you know, has, that is part of the success metrics that you've agreed to kind of up front. And that to me is like always the way that you can start to move the conversation around sub, like being subjective. And you can kind of go, if we were to take this approach, here is the impact that this could have on this campaign. Is it sort of like almost removing your own personal bias or like not basically not speaking from a first person perspective? Is it is that what you mean or is it? Yeah, totally. Like, it, 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 like that's one of the things that we kind of will touch on earlier about like re- when you walk into any kind of brainstorm or any kind of pitch, it is about leaving your bias behind. I see bias come into rooms constantly every day and it's, it's you know nothing more frustrating when i when i kind of see that happen but yeah i like I, you know to me again it is just trying to remove that that level of personal bias that you may have towards it but also like i said going back to what are the success metrics that you've kind of agreed on up front and therefore how do you kind of anchor the creative your creativity into those and know that if a client wants to deviate from that what is the impact that it's actually going to have on the end result of the campaign yeah, I hear what you mean. I hear what you mean. And and so when you say bias, and Bag, I can see you sort of looking along here too, but when you say bias, what, what are some of those inherent client biases? Like, what are the things, what are the, if you were to group together in the totality of both your, your respective careers, interact with clients, how does client bias manifest when it comes to creative? What are the things that they typically are very precious about or hang on to or, or seem to think are quite important that actually might not be? Any thoughts on that bag? Anything that comes to mind immediately? No, nah, because I, I mean, I really, I don't really think that. Um, and that was, um, I look, you know, I'll, I'll flip back to the, the, um, the actual question around, um, what do you do in that moment, right? When, when a piece of creative is not landed that you believe in it, it's not landing and you see it and they're rejecting it for whatever reason that they've got, I find it really hard. To in that moment to think that you're gonna woo them back because you're part of what you have to do is evaluate. And I remember doing this through when we're making Decoding Genius, the podcast. And the first thing that we sent across to the client was the mu- music we're going to use. And and Alex had composed it, and we were really happy with it. And they were like, "It sounds too dark." And from there, and I remember chatting to Alex that this is at um, TUE and Jules's husband, Dargsy. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Smith. And then I was like, they, they're not going to unhear dark. That was my first thing. I was like, there's, we can't, we can't try and, you know, magic tongue our way out of yeah. this. So, so like, it's a kill for me in that moment. And so it is having the real, you know, a psychologist told me, the first psychologist I ever went to is like, how do I handle creative rejection? I asked him that because I was like, I never, you know, people say don't take it so personally. And you go, well, it is personal. Creativity is personal. I, like I've dug into my past and my history and experiences. And he was like, well, you've got to, you've got to do this. You've got to go, is it true? Is it false? Do I need more information? And then about two years later, I read Emotional Intelligence, the goal book. And that was his, how do you short circuit from your kind of amygdala to your kind of rational thinking cortex of your brain? That's the same thing. It's the same technique. It's kind of like stop emotionally reacting, think about it, right? Um, but you know, so like, I don't think, I don't think I can, I genuinely, because part of it is also is like, are you a creative if you're emotionally invested in it and you kind of feel rejected in that moment? It's probably best not to open your mouth because you might say something shit. 
um, and, and from that emotional place. So how in that moment you kind of then have to let them speak, let them talk about, okay, what is it that what's not hitting it for you? And then really get them to tell you what's not working for it and then think about it and go, okay, well, I'm going to go away and think about this because, I, you know, I, I still believe the essence is in there or whatever it is. And then you go away and you think about how you represent it in a different way or how you come, what is it that they're not, that you haven't illuminated that they can't see. But I think the ego thinks you can think on your feet and magic, you know, bring this concept back to life. But the human goes, do people really, does that win people over in the moment? It's not like a rape deal. You're talking about a subjective thing. So like, mm. I, let them talk, get them to talk, hear their opinion, validate it. And then, you know, walk away and go, is it a kill? Is the idea that is what they've said actually true? And I've had it, you know, we, we lost a million dollar pitch once and I, I led that pitch and it was the virgin one, Doug's, and we, we pitched a digital radio station in a fire truck. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and we didn't even get the shortlist and we thought we had it in the bag. And the reason we got the feedback, the reason why was from a client perspective, they looked at it and they thought they would have to do too much work. Oh. And you're like, fuck yeah, that's exactly right. We should have lost it. We shouldn't. And so for the next time, we obviously got smarter. But yeah, so I don't, like inherently, I don't, I'm not that attached to what it is, what I've created um, because I don't know what I don't know and I can't see and what they know. And they might bring something, they might see something and you go, oh my God, I didn't even think about that back lash they'll get in social media if they even say that yeah word. okay okay you know what i mean yeah, so yeah, like yeah. yeah just so so think of you know our job as creative and sales team together is to keep the ball in the air and alive and that's it and so um in that moment when there's a form of rejection or you know objection how do we keep the ball alive yep. and that and what i've seen not work is um, doubling down on the same idea. Like digging your heels in and post-rationalizing it. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. And your body language and all those things, right? And the mood shifting because you've you've heard, you know, you, ha- you don't handle rejection really well and you got to, like, and very rarely it will, like, I just don't like it. It's not, you're not going to get that. <laughs> that will just be a really unsophisticated kind of client. And if you ha- uh, have the tools and, like you said before, the emotional intelligence to kind of go, okay, cool, what is it about it? Is it... You know, is it whatever, whatever, and like probe them yeah, for yeah. it and get a conversation going, and the ball's alive. So you know, you're in play. It's a good call, and like mm. I'll jump to you in a sec, Doug's, but it's a good call. Even like, I just don't like it. You're not going to hear that. What you'll often hear is actually, oh yeah, that's good, and it's like, nah, nah, like that's a that's a moment I've got to probe because that's a polite way of saying they don't like it. So oftentimes it's like you're looking for the reverse signal, and leaning into that is actually important. Like scrutinizing that being cynical about do they really love it or are they do they actually um just not want to hurt our feelings yeah well you could be ballsy there and you could go uh yeah i don't really want good i want great how can we make it great for you yeah good call right (laughs) and one of the things that i kind of really ask myself when you're in that situation as well is did i give the idea enough room that they could feel involved and part of the actual idea itself yeah so did, was there enough because so, every single person that you're talking to or pitching the idea to you need to be able to leave enough space where they can start to see and imagine themselves in in that idea and what role they can actually play with it as well yeah and sometimes you know if you over engineer an idea and you don't allow that room or that space in there um you know i feel as though i've sat similar to what bag was saying before 
some of the pictures that you know I have taken probably left the room with the feedback that I didn't want to hear and had taken the most hard are the ones that I've probably spent the most amount of time you know, fussing over, really kind of getting every single element of the campaign exactly how I want to see it, exactly how I hear it, then I pitch it and you do get those the reaction where you don't get the excitement or that same, you're pitching it with such enthusiasm, you don't get that bouncing back towards you. Yeah. You know, it, it makes you it makes you walk out and go, shit, I've, I've over-engineered it and I haven't probably given them enough, you know, space to be able to play either. That's a really good call. I mean... One of the things I know from a pitching standpoint, and this was something that I did cover on the podcast with Wade, or he probably took us through it, but it was always a bit of my ethos too, was you you pitch an idea in those phases, right? And so it's like, what's the thing that's super unoffensive that we can all collectively agree on? You know, we know that this is the product we need to sell to this person. Um and the way we're going to do that is through utilizing this talent. And we're going to be looking at you like it's trying to kind of get to a point and it's sort of going, do we all collectively agree in all these things? Now, when it's time for kind of the final part of the idea, they might go, yeah, look, I don't really like that. Okay. So everything else you like, it's just this last part you don't like. So you can actually go, we don't have to abandon the whole thing. It just might be mm. you don't like that talent or you don't like that yeah. where that lives or you don't like the tone of that. But the bedrock of the idea and the solution, we're all still agreeing on. So we're not going back to the drawing board. We're just tweaking and collaborating. Well, what would we need to change? How could we change it? Could we do this? Well, that's a good rep. Like the, like one, I can't remember which workplace I was at, whether it was my last one or 1,500 years ago, AD. <laughs> um, was that, like There's a philosophy that we had was like no to da moments. Yes. And that was like, so when you get, when you're walking into a room to pitch to somebody, there's always, there's been a soft pitch going on behind the scene. And the great account managers, I think of Julianne Longano, JLo, mm. she was unbelievably good at it. She was like just contracting the client back and forth before, like, and we knew we we're walking in with and, and still keeping enough powder dry to kind of wow in the room. Yeah. And so for me, that's the, you know, in media solutions, that's the um, excellent account management skill. The elite level is the one who's kind of got that relationship where you know, you know, and it's and it and it's a fine line because if you if you don't have those skills, then you can do it. Then you end up doing it in a way that you're going with the prescribed thing and what the client wants. It is that kind of um, just that checking and that contracting skill that that you know creatives. Um, don't have and it, and that's what makes dynamic kind of team work absolutely mate i think even like just at a real tactical level like what i remember maybe more in the radio days because radio radio's currency really on a lot of pitches is the idea right like it just is it's it's the thing and it's the way it's sold is often what what determines what's the best idea the best idea might not be the one that's pitched the best in the room it's the one that you can sell the best um so to your point bag like yeah, if, if if the post like if the fulfillment of this idea causes me to do way more work and creates drag and creates hell for the next three months, I don't want to buy that idea, even though I reckon it's great. Um, so I think like those politics are so important, and to me, it's like there's really two or three critical stages at a at a rep level where you can really set yourself up for success, and it's uncovering unique information when you interrogate, like uncovering things that your competitors won't, and making sure that that's really like pronounced when you come back in your solution and the other one is like creating leverage by figuring out what the dynamics of the people you're pitching to and going who actually holds the influence here who in the room if they endorse this idea is going to make every other domino fall over with them and how do we make sure that we go in and de-risk pitching a, a, a new concept by giving them enough it can often be kind of like um misconstrued as like you know like sales tactics but to me i'm just like no it's just actually really good 
strategic selling. It's just understanding the dynamics of selling to a lot of different stakeholders with different objectives and selling in a highly contested competitive environment. Well, it takes the naivety out of it, right? It takes naivety that you, that, at the, and the naivety is linked to the subjectiveness that the best idea wins. Well, what's the criteria of best idea? And so for me, the best idea is the one that sails through all those fucking checkpoints, right? And that is, that is the craft of like this podcast is called sales mastery. That is elite level sales mastery, understanding the invisible barriers that you know that will determine with whether your business is successful your proposal your solution is successful and just going in on ego oh you've got the best idea you're a naive kid mm-hmm. right like a hundred percent that you know if you can see um four-dimensional chess kind of going on and you understand that this is and it's not politics it is because that just sounds like it's just that that's a kind of yeah there's out. a negative it connotation is, of the word isn't there yeah yeah yeah, but this is how businesses won and done, and it's a and it it just is. And if you understand that, then yeah, and and ultimately, you know, when it gets to where it's gonna it's gonna have its best chance possible because you guys have come up with it, and you know your audience, and you know what they're into, and whatever. Yeah, yeah, and, and the people, the people all are invested in it because they've been to Doug's point, they felt like they're part of that process as well. Uh, okay, let's jump into the listener question, guys. I can't ask my sales manager that. Hey, Jamie, I work for a major publisher as an agency account director. I'm not sure if it's my portfolio of agencies, my product, or just the way things are, but I'm surprised by how little exposure I get to client creative. In direct sales, I was central to the entire creative process. I worry that when putting my solutions together, the focus is too much on media execution elements and we neglect the vital role of creative. Any tips for incorporating creative into the discussion? Is this with creative agency or can I do it with media agency? Just to add a little bit more context to this one, what, I, what I'm getting from this is indirect sales, and I would share this, indirect sales, you are dealing directly with the advertiser. You are often central to shaping that creative brief, sharing the creative scripts, getting approval, getting it all produced in agency you're doing often bigger deals. If there isn't an element of integration or if it's more of a straight buy, a lot of what you're transacting is actually just media media inventory and you're focusing a lot more on data and um, and, and different kind of products and whatnot. So I, I, can, I can kind of see that what this person is going is how do I get more exposure or how do I use the creative, the creative element as a sales tool when I don't feel like I'm naturally afforded those opportunities. Does that make sense to you, Dargs? It do, yeah, it does. The way I, I kind of I kind of looked at this as well was, you know, from a, an account director who probably feels as though they have something to offer from a creative point of view and feels as though they can probably impact the solution from a creative point, but don't have the, uh, the seat at the table or, or aren't involved in the discussion at the right place. And, you know, one of the things for me, um, I go, I go for this is, you know, Account directors sometime will go, my role in this is purely just to navigate this client through this process as opposed to going, how can I be involved in it from a creative? And I go, don't ask, don't wait for permission to be creative. Get in there. What's stopping, you know, I was reading, when I looked at this, I was like, what's stopping this account director from getting involved in that creative process, sending, you know, unsolicited ideas, working out how a campaign could evolve or, you know, be done in a different way. Um, a, a long time ago, it was James Bays that once said to me, you know, he challenged me when I was, um, 
at SCA to build these connections up um, and impact solutions a little bit more from a content point of view was to start emailing content directors with ideas that have nothing to do with sales or nothing to do with the commercial output, but it was literally just trying to, you know, um, build a rapport and have them understand that you are a creative person that they should be bringing into a process much earlier on. And I feel as though I look at, you know, this account director, I go, but, you know, show that passion, show, you know, don't wait for the permission to be in there, get on the front foot, show the passion. And then what you'll find is that the door will actually open for you um, further up the more that you kind of, you know, put yourself out there for it. What do you think, Bang? Yeah, I saw it a different way. So I saw it as, you know, the process from agency creative, develops a creative, working with, and I saw it inside when I was at Media Brands, so I saw, like, I think, we're, like, we were a digital agency inside media brands, and initiative had like, like one of the alcohol brands, and so the creative agency would come in and they'd, they'd share their, you know, this is the creative, um, you know, brand platform campaign idea, and then the media starts to work out, okay, how are we going to do this? So th- there's th- this person's gone from being at the forefront, you know, the briefing involved, you know, with working with the creators, working with the client, to three steps back from it and just in what turns up as a briefing and not they haven't seen any of that development process happen. Um, so I think they've, I think the value exchange has to be, well, the, they have to kind of articulate why it's important for them to be a part of that process, what value, not them as the individual, but them as the representative of their media company by sharing that creative idea with us earlier um, we can, you know, build whatever solutions, but, um, I, I genuinely think there's a cynic in me and, I, and so many times in like radio and stereo, every new sales director would, would, and they'd get some strategist from an agency coming in, you know, full time or consulting going, you've got to get into the creative. Um, shops. That's where the decision's being made, right? And you kind of go, it never works. They don't want to hear from you. They don't like, what do you bring to the table? They, that is their, um, you know, credentials. That is their currency. That is like, you, you just seriously, you're like that great quote from Bond. You're a, a kite in the hurricane, Mr. Bond. Like, like, what is your, what is your role at the table? What do you, what do you want to be in there for? Like understand understand how money moves and the business works and the creative impacts, and then if it is valuable enough for them as creative agency, them as a client, then yeah, go go forward and put your pitch forward. But it sounds like a it sounds like a, I used to be this important person and I don't get yeah. that now. So I, like I would really question yourself to go, well, what are you, what are you, what are you, not as the individual, but what is you as a representative of your organization going to bring to the table that's going to change the way that, um, this campaign has been developed by, you know, some pretty goddamn good people who know their shit. So I just, and I think you, you're trying to, it just feels like backdoor your way into more revenue through this secret magic fantasy connection of, oh, we're going to unlock the creative agency world and all, and the rivers of gold are going to come to our business. And it just doesn't work. Yeah, maybe I'm cynical, but it's like, oh, we've got to get into the creative credit. It's like, do you think you're the first person to ever have that idea? Like, I reckon I get pitched 100%. that idea 4,000 times every year. And I, yeah, it's funny. We've all got a different perspective on this. Um, and this person submitted this via LinkedIn and thank you for doing it because I can, 
understand it because I live this as well. So I moved from direct to agency and I definitely went, wow, stark contrast. And even in out of home, I'm probably, even as a sales director, I'm going, there's a different, there's a different style of how you sell out of home to other, other platforms, right? And creativity is definitely part of it, but it is not as much of a part of it as maybe it was in other roles I've been in. But the one thing I'd say to this person that is really worth thinking about is you've got different environments and different formats and different products. You don't have to be designing the creative that's going to go to market, but you could use creative mocks to sell the products. So I'll give an example in Out of Home, right? We have retail media, we have street furniture, we have large format digital, we have offices, we have airports. We have all these different formats. And I could speak to you objectively all day about the benefits of all of them and the features and how the product works and how the audience is different and what the format does. Or I could create a beautiful suite of of visual assets that show exactly what it does and how beautiful a brand looks on all the environments and how they all look beautiful together. Right, and, and it makes my job a hell of a lot easier because I literally don't have to create any real subjective value. It's already there. They, they can see how beautiful their brand looks. So maybe for this person, you know, there's, there's a gem there with all three of us, which is going, um, we get it. Everyone likes to be part of the creative process. Like I know some people, you know, that, that really enjoy just the collaborative nature and they just love being close to the idea machine and being in a room with, with two charismatic idea generators like yourself, I'm sure that'd be very appealing. So I think this person's probably just acclimatizing to a new world as well. Yeah. And just on your, your point, right, that's a really, because just it stirred up when we, when we introduced all the different um, length, you know, the triple treats, dads, all those uh, different length ads, and it, we kept them to ourselves, like three ten seconders for an ad break, right? And they weren't about ten second um, ads. It was about what we what we did as kind of creatives, and and uh, what I saw our role is educate them how to use your surfaces um, differently. And so, to your point, is a great point. It's about like not just his this at home or whatever it is like for the three tens i still remember that like pitch that i did it was proactive it was to like one of the um quit cigarette people um and it was like um the austere ad breaks were so long at the time and then nova was hammering them but like in this instance it was a it was a positive because it was like three ten seconds through the ad break actually equaled the length of one cigarette craving and so I kind of created this story of coaching you through a cigarette craving, but I just happened to use the inventory yep. of these three ten seconders. And so as an in-house creative, I knew these different formats and knew how to use them. So it's a really great shout that you've got. So instead of talking, turning your creative that way to the market, turn it this way in-house to your people and come up with really interesting ways to use your channels, surfaces, mediums, whatever it is, not just... I'm going to try and make pretty brand ads because they'll never see it. The creatives won't agency won't see it. They'll just go, oh, you, 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 you know, your poor cousin kind of trying, try hard. Ad Shell, obviously, which is the, the bus, the street furniture um, advertising business, which was acquired um, in 2018. But when Ad Shell was a standalone proposition where they used to just sell the advertising on the bus shelters and then they'd have some rail assets. And I say this with the utmost respect. It's a very one-dimensional product if you're looking at the specific product, right? The product itself is a static panel at that time. It wasn't even digitized. But they were incredibly good at showing how you could do a really cool special build, how you could make it like an interactive billboard, um, how you could just kind of take advantage of the natural environment around it, how you could 
just find a way to make the creative just feel quite cool and pop. And suddenly you're creating a bit of a halo around the product. Therefore, when I need to buy 200 static street furniture panels, emotionally I feel better doing it with you guys because I still like I still feel like the product has some edge and, and I, I emotionally connect with it because I like it. And even the narrative they'd build around it, around like, you know, own the consumer journey or um, shine brighter. Like I think they used to have a really good example of really good trade marketing, making a relatively straightforward product feel like a lot more. But the mechanism they always used was the creative, right? It wasn't the product features. It wasn't the rational data. It was the creativity that this is, this the canvas that you've got here for creativity. It was a challenge, right? In that in that sense, it's like laying down the challenge. And so, it's, it's great advice for you know this uh, LinkedIn question is like like show how to use it. Challenge that can can you do it? Be as creative as we can with our own thing. And you should you you should be the masters of your own surface, right? To go back to what you were saying before, bug about you know the the playing and looking at you know for us it's that ad break and and you know, how many. 30 second spots you can put in there, but how else you can kind of use that. You know, some of the great account directors that, that, you know, we work with as well will kind of not view it as an ad break, but view it as an ongoing content opportunity. Yep. And then that allows us to then facilitate different conversations with our content directors because they're far more willing to trade off, you know, the, the premium content airtime if they know that we're treating it with the same level of respect and, and, and creativity in which they do as well. So it's yeah. about kind of transitioning that conversation. I, I promised myself I'd go this podcast without referencing Andy Procopus, but he had a, he had a saying that, I just loved, and we, it's a big inside joke, is we used to love getting deals over the line that were integrated AF with not a drop of content airtime. So it was like, how do we almost like use sales inventory and sneak it through the listener so they think that it's, you know, that it's actually part of the content. And the reality is most listeners don't delineate. Like, I don't think there's any listener who goes, okay, that's a that's a that's paid promo. Now we're into it. Yeah, I'm sure they know when they're in the ad breaks. But yeah, that, that whole approach I think is really cool and it's really cool to sell because you start to kind of realize really quickly like we're really selling increments of like 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds of of the same sort of units but you can pretty much kind of turn them into whatever you need to with the right kind of, you know, approach and the right kind of thinking. Um, so it's, yeah, integrated AF and not a drop of content airtime. I have to credit Andy for that one. It's an interesting finish because it goes right back to the beginning of what Bag started with, which is around what is an effective campaign. It is its audience first, yep. and it really is thinking about what the audience is. You know, that is they're the ones that determine what is an effective campaign. I love the way you have just wrapped that up beautifully, Dugs. Because I feel like we could just bang on for a couple more hours, and maybe we do need to to get into something else, guys. But I totally agree with the way you wrap that up, mate. Like to me, it's. It's maybe the, the, the takeaway is as a rep sitting there in front of a client being tasked with telling their brand story, and I'm stealing this from a previous podcast from Roy Hawker, but he said, think of it like you're the most cynical member of the audience, and your job is to kind of do an investigation into what's going to connect me with that with that business. And being a family-owned business around for 30 years, we know all those tropes. But going in with that approach of just trying to go, what actually is going to compel this audience to connect with this brand? Like, that's my job to find that out. Um, that is a really good way to finish it and to start the pod. So thank you, guys. Anything else? What's going on in the world of Third Space Bag? How, how's that all? You've been there, what, six months now? How's it all going? What are you working on? 
I'm working on a very cool alcohol-free um, importer curator called Vin Zero, and they've got a whole bunch of great um, uh, alcohol-free wines. And we've just done a campaign with the president of Similia Australia, a lady called Sarah Andrew, who's advocating for no and low alcohols um, in hospitality for the reasons of, you know, the growing trend for diners at the table, not people being left out, inclusive. And as a 20-year non-drinker and third space is a purpose-led agency, I feel like all of my, you know, my my, um, my own purpose has kind of sunk itself into this campaign. But what I also like what she's doing is um, she's really advocating for the mental health of hospitality workers because you don't th- – Think about Samilia's struggling with, with alcohol, uh, you know, um, addiction. You know, and I mean, obviously, chefs is a well-known um, fact. And she lost some friends, uh, you know, and people, you know, lost their jobs in the industry. So she's also advocating that, you know, that even at staff drinks in hospo, there should be no low alcohol options and there should be education. So that's a little one that I'm working on. I'm really loving. Uh, and so one of the drinks that they've got is a brand called Venata and it's sparkly bubbly and it's probably the um, best alcohol-free um, bubbly that I've tasted in 20 years of not drinking. So I think that's what I toasted in my video when I did 20 years was drinking awesome. that product. So, yes. That's cool, man. What about you, Dugs? We've got a pretty exciting year ahead of us. We had, you know, 2022 was um, obviously a fairly large merge between ARN and Grant, which, you know, took our footprint from being a very metro-facing, um, you know, radio network into um, a fully a full national kind of facing um, into over 100, and I think it's over 140 different um, regional markets now as well. And, you know, with that, the ability to kind of take a lot of the learnings that, you know, we've kind of, um, we've, we've learned from a metro point of view and start to apply those out regionally as well. Um, the other exciting thing that we've got this year is Vanessa Hunt has, um, joined our business as well. Um, and, you know, Ness has really kind of brought a, a really differing view and opinion on on audio like Ness obviously has a very um, steep digital background and so her ability to kind of challenge some of the ways that we're already looking and thinking um, you know about audio is um, pretty exciting so uh, I think that um, some good work coming up this year. Love it guys well hey it's always a pleasure to speak to each of you individually but to get us all together has been a real treat tonight guys so thank you for making the time let's do it again soon hey. Thanks, Jamie. Cheers, man.